0: Father, we ask you that as we open up our Bibles now that you would still our hearts and that you would make us attentive to your voice. And I pray, oh God, that you would also make us aware of our own selves, of our life, and where your word needs to come in contact with the lives that we're living. Places where you need to challenge us and convict us or to encourage us or to move us in a new direction. God, we pray that by your spirit you would come and you would do that among us by your spirit. So come, Holy Spirit, through your word and speak. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said... So this week, I was listening to a lecture from Google strategist and also doctoral candidate in ethics of persuasion at Oxford, a guy whose name was James Williams. And he was giving a discussion about the attention economy. And he he points out that Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and YouTube, and you could also think about Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, he he basically said, look, these outlets, these uh, uh, companies are not so much social media companies. He said, rather, their business is attention. Their whole goal, like their business model, is based upon the idea that they want to extract information from you. So they want to figure out where you go when you search online. They want to know your interests. They want to know everything about you. And then they want to carefully curate uh, stuff that gets your attention. And the kind of stuff that gets your attention, it's usually not truth or boring stuff like that. It's usually stuff that creates outrage or conspiracy theories or just weird stuff or funny stuff or whatever. But the bottom line is, is that their job is to get our attention. It's their entire business model. So he was giving this, uh, this discussion on the topic of, uh, of the attention economy. And his main thesis in this talk was simply this. He said, the attention economy is not on our side. Now, you probably don't need a Google strategist to tell you that. You knew that already, didn't you? Because you have wasted a lot of time. You've been caught up in this stuff. You've been filled with outrage or anxiety because of the stuff you've been caught up in. But he says, the attention economy is not on your side. Now, of course, Google Maps is on your side, isn't it? And Spotify, it's on my side. There's a lot of good uh, technology that is on our side. It does help us. But he says, by and large, oftentimes, the stuff that gets our attention the most is stuff that doesn't share the same goals as we have. And so he said, think for a minute about your goals. So your goals for your own life, you know, a lot of you, you want to exercise and eat healthy. And you want to spend more quality time with your family. And when you're with family members, you want to be able to attend to them, and listen, and be heard, and to know. And maybe you want to cultivate your own life with God. Uh, You want to cultivate the spiritual life and disciplines of reflection and attention. And you want to spend time with God and in his word. So you have these goals for your life. And he said, but these are not the same goals that these companies, that the tech companies have for your life. Their goals are different. They want to maximize the amount of time you spend on their devices. And they want to maximize the number of clicks or swipes, or taps, or whatever. And then, of course, they want to uh, maximize the number of page views. This is what their goals are for you. And, and these goals are just very different. You know, uh, CEO of Netflix uh, was giving a talk. And in the talk, he said this. He said, at Netflix, we are competing for our, cu- our customers' time and attention. And so our competitors are Snapchat, YouTube, sleep, etc says, so the competitors that we have are sleep. They want to draw you out of sleep and out of family time and out of uh, exercise and out of all co- They want to get your attention. This is what they are trying to do. And I think for a lot of us, it's just working, isn't it? And it is creating a, a, a whole community of people who are addicted and distracted by technology. And this is kind of the reality we inhabit. Uh, It's what uh, one uh, uh, Microsoft researcher, Linda Stone, calls our new normal. She says it's continual partial attention. And of course, this is a huge problem for you if you are a follower of Jesus or even if you just want to live a healthy human life, right? Because some of the most critical disciplines that are necessary for a full and rich life with God, it's a discipline of attention to your own soul and to God and to your neighbor. And this is just not what the world we inhabit right now is training us to do. You know, last week uh, I showed you uh, this image and I said, you know, you can almost, or at least I, The the, the Psalm 1 actually presents two types of people we can become over the long course of our lives. Uh, On the one hand, we can grow into a rich, thoughtful, intelligent, uh, spiritually wise human being that is pictured in the psalm as this tree that is fruitful, full of wisdom and guidance, and uh, just a deep soul. On the other hand is chaff. Uh, this is a shallow, superficial person, you know, that is not thoughtful, that is distracted, that is just. And he said, there's, there's one of two directions you can go in life. And I think almost all of us in this room, we want the vision that we have for our life is that tree, right? I don't think there's anybody in here today that wants to be chaff, do you? <laughs> And, um, and yet, the habits and the practices of our, of our life actually are not taking us to become a tree. It's taking us to become chaff. And so we have been engaged in this series over the last few weeks called Rhythms. And what we're talking about is how we can organize the rhythms and the habits and the practices of our life so that they actually take us into becoming the kind of human being that we want to. Uh, so that we can cultivate practices and rhythms and habits in our life that actually help us connect with God and make us more attentive to God and to neighbor. And so we've been in this series called Rhythms. In our first week, we talked about prayer. Last week, we talked about scripture, meditation. But today, I want to talk about the discipline, about the rhythm, about the habit of solitude and silence. It was Dallas Willard who said that solitude is the most fundamental discipline for growth in the Christian life. You will rarely find anyone who has made much progress who hasn't practiced solitude. Dallas Willard says, look, one of the most essential features of anybody who wants to develop a a, a life with God, a, a way of being in this world where you are attentive to God and to yourself, your soul, and to your neighbor, is to engage in the regular discipline and the practice of solitude and silence. Now, Willard argues that the reason why he thinks this is so essential for the spiritual life is because this practice was essential to the life of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this in reading through the Gospels, but one of the most regular and habitual things that you find Jesus doing in the Gospels is withdrawing to practice solitude and silence. And so I want to just show you this in the Bible, because it's one of those things that you might, might miss if you don't have it pointed out you're not paying attention. And so we want to pay attention and just walk through a few passages of scripture where we see Jesus engaged in the practice of silence and solitude. So let's begin with Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. So where we pick up this text, Jesus is launching out into his public ministry. And what's the very first thing Jesus does after he's baptized and he hears the voice of his father, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The very first thing Jesus does is he heads out, uh, not to the crowds, but to a barren, desolate place. And he spends about a month and a half in solitude and silence. The text says this, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness Isn't it interesting, where is it that God leads his son? Where is it that the spirit is driving him right at the beginning? It is out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. I like that last phrase. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. It's just this evocative sort of like image that we're given, right? I want you to notice that the text says that Jesus was driven out into the wilderness. That word wilderness is the word in Greek, eremos, and it it can be translated as wilderness. It can also be translated in some Bibles as desolate place, uh, in other Bibles as a solitary place. In other words, it's describing a place where Jesus could go where he could be alone. And this isn't just at the beginning of his ministry that Jesus goes out into a solitary place. Notice uh, what it says a little bit later in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. You know, uh, if you know anything about the opening chapter of Mark, uh, it is filled with this frenetic energy. And I like the opening chapter. of I like Mark in general because Mark is full of frenetic energy and I am full of frenetic energy. Some of you can feel that when I'm speaking, you know, I need to calm down a little bit, you know. Um, but uh, he, he describes a day in the life of Jesus in these opening uh, verses. And Jesus is moving from place to place, and he's healing the sick, and he's, he's casting out demons, and he's cleansing lepers, and he's teaching in the synagogue. And Jesus, in this opening chapter, his day is just busy, busy, busy. Anybody here like uh, find yourself busy, busy, busy through the week, you know? And, uh, but look at what it says. After this long day, what does Jesus do? It says, in rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. It's the same word in Greek, uh, aremois. It is describing a solitary place. Jesus went out where he could be alone. And there he prayed. But this isn't just in the opening chapter of, uh, or the opening part of Jesus's ministry where he goes into a solitary place for a month and a half. And it's not just after a busy day. It it tells us a little bit later in the Gospel of Luke that this was a regular pattern in the life of Jesus. Look at what it says in Luke chapter 5, verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place, or a solitary place. Again, it's that same word in Greek, aremois. Jesus was often withdrawing to these solitary places where he could go and pray. And this isn't just something that Jesus himself often did, it was something that Jesus invited his disciples, his followers, to do with him. Look at what it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. This is great. Uh, the, the, at this point in the story, Jesus sent out his disciples to go preach and teach in a variety of different cities. And they are carrying on his ministry of healing and teaching and exorcisms. And they get back, and they're excited, they're invigorated, and they want to talk about it. And Jesus says, "Well, slow down. Let's get away to a solitary place. Look at what it says. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place for a while. Why it says, look at the next phrase, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to even eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So Jesus now invites his disciples, you and I, to practice this withdrawal into the solitary place, the aremois with him. He says, look, engage in this practice. And he invites them in. Now, of course, as the story continues, they don't get quiet for very long because the crowds get wind of where Jesus and his disciples are, and they just surround him. And Jesus doesn't get upset with the crowds. He doesn't yell at them. He is patient with them. And in, instead, he teaches them for hours and hours. And after teaching them for hours, uh, the, the, the crowds are hungry. And his disciples, they're, they're done. They're spent. And they're like, Jesus, send them away. And he's like, no, you, you give them something to eat. And they end up feeding the crowds. And so now it's been another long day piled upon like this excruciating kind of like uh, busyness of ministry. And after after all of that, look what it says next. Immediately, he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Jesus says, you get in the boat, I'll dismiss the crowds. And after he had taken leave of them, what did Jesus do? He went up to a mountain to pray. He again withdrew to a solitary place. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And so again, what is Jesus doing? Well, after after the frenetic activity of ministry, Jesus withdraws to a solitary place to pray. And so what are we seeing throughout the the Gospels? What do we see? We're seeing a pattern emerge in the life of Jesus. And the pattern is this. In in the midst of a a life in community, Jesus also had time in solitude. In, In the midst of a life of frenetic, busy activity out with people, Jesus would often take space to be alone in silence, And if this is what Jesus did as a regular pattern and rhythm and habit in his life, then this is something that you and I need to cultivate and to bring into our own life in following Jesus. You know, Jesus later says that a disciple is not above his teacher, but when they are fully trained, a disciple will become like their rabbi or their teacher, In other words, if you are cultivating a life of discipleship to Jesus, over time, you will begin to take his practices into your life and you will make them your own. And so if Jesus practiced solitude and silence, then you and I should practice solitude and silence. I was listening to a talk uh, from Dallas Willard, that great uh, spiritual luminary. And uh, Willard said, look, he said, if Jesus needed 40 days in solitude and silence, then I might need one or two myself. And so might you. But what, 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 what is solitude and silence all about anyway? Well, uh, in her book, uh, The Handbook of Spiritual Disciplines, uh, Adele Cal- Calhoun describes it like this. She says that solitude is uninterrupted time in a distraction-free environment to be alone with yourself and with God. Uh, she says that uh, solitude is a container discipline. It, it's, it's the container in which you pour other types of spiritual disciplines. In other words, uh, we, we talk about prayer and we talk about Bible reading, but you can't really get in effectively to prayer and Bible reading unless you take time in solitude and silence to quiet your own soul and yourself before God. I don't know how many of you have uh, started to utilize that Rhythms booklet. How many of you guys, just by show of hands, picked up a Rhythms booklet? You've been utilizing it? That's awesome. Uh, So you'll notice in the daily prayer, uh, it always starts out by asking you to pause and to breathe and to be still and to recognize uh, that, that you are in the presence of God. And I don't know about you, but I can find myself, because I'm a doer and I like to get things done and I like to fill my day with stuff that I'm accomplishing and getting through, that sometimes I can view Bible reading and prayer as just another thing to accomplish and check off the list and get through. But when you pause and you just take space in quiet and in solitude, you can still yourself so that you can actually bring yourself into those disciplines and maybe find yourself, your soul, being touched by God because of it. I was reading a book a while back, and they recommended setting a timer for five minutes and just sitting and doing nothing. And so I tried that, and I went four minutes. No, but I I have a short attention span, you know? And and, and this is something, this this posture of sitting in quiet and silence before God, it is something you need to learn in your body, and you need to train your body to do it. And if you don't train your body through little exercises, five minutes here, and then extending it to 10 minutes, you know, it's going to be difficult to sit in quiet and reflection in the presence of God. So this is solitude, and uh, so solitude is a container discipline that allows us to do prayer and Bible reading and then to practice silence. She says, silence is intentionally attending to and listening to God in quiet without interruption and noise. Isn't that what your soul needs? is just to spend time in quiet and reflection without all of the noise. We are just inundated with noise and distraction and stipulation. And we just need to quiet our souls and ourselves. And the discipline of solitude and silence is that practice whereby we sit in God's presence. Again, Dallas Willard, solitude is the most fundamental discipline for growth in the Christian life. You will rarely find anyone who has made much progress who hasn't practiced solitude. So I want to spend just a few minutes talking a little bit more, kind of bring some clarity on what solitude is and what solitude isn't, and how we can engage in this practice. So first, solitude is not so much about getting away from annoying people as it is about drawing close to God. Now, anybody have any annoying people in your life? Anybody want to point any of them out right now? <laughs> no, we all have annoying, difficult people. And yeah, of course, sometimes you just need to get away from difficult, annoying people. And you need to create some boundaries in your life, right? But that's primarily not what solitude is about. Solitude isn't so much about just getting away from the annoying people so much as it is drawing near to God. It is about cultivating a life with God. Ruth Haley Barton said, we are starved for quiet to hear the sound of sheer silence in the presence of God himself. And so this discipline, and you see this in the life of Jesus, he withdraws to the mountain in order to do what? He spends time in prayer. And I don't imagine prayer for Jesus was simply rattling off a list. I think prayer involved both sitting in God's presence and listening as well as responding and being quiet, allowing God to reinforce his own good love and presence around him. And so it, it's not primarily about just withdrawing from people. You know, you could kind of get the, uh, the impression from somebody, like if you ran into somebody this week and you said, hey, what, 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 what have you been up to? They said, well, I just spent a month and a half by myself out in the Mojave Desert." you think like, wow, you're weird, right? I mean, you, you might get the impression that they are loners, that they're just out, like they're, they're like little hermits. You guys ever watch that show? I think it was on Netflix or Amazon Prime, Alone. You know, they, they go send, you know, a bunch of, of like wilderness survival experts up to some place up in like the barren tundra of like the, you know, North uh, Canadian wilderness or something. And they drop them out in the middle of nowhere just to survive and live by themselves. And you, the, the people that survive on that show are always the weirdest people. Like they're people that just don't like other human beings. They 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 did well on their own out in the wilderness because when they weren't up on the show, they were living alone. But this isn't Jesus. Jesus isn't. Uh, uh, Jesus doesn't dislike people. You know, uh, Jesus isn't trying to simply get away from people. Uh, Jesus has a rhythm in his life of being with people, of being in community, of sharing meals with all kinds of people day by day. And he's going to sleep. And his disciples are down on the floor around him. And he's walking throughout the day with him. He's always with people. Jesus is with people all the time, because Jesus actually likes people. He probably likes you too, because <laughs> he likes all kinds of people. And so he spends time with people. Uh, but, but this is a rhythm of community and also being alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his brilliant little book, Life Together, captures kind of this rhythm and this need of being both in community and, in pe- within, and, and, and alone like this. He says, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. He will only do harm to himself and to the community. Alone you stood before God when he called you. Alone, you had to answer that call. Alone, you had to struggle and pray. And alone, you will die and give an account to God. You cannot escape from yourself. But then he says the inverse is also true. He says, let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Into the community, you were called. And the call was not meant for you alone in the community of the called. You bear the cross. You struggle. You pray. You are not alone, even in death. And on that last day, you will only be one member of the great congregation of Jesus Christ. And so the genuine, authentic, well-lived Christian life involves both solitude as well as community, the day alone as well as the day in community. And so number one, solitude is not so much about getting away from annoying people, so much as it is about drawing near to God. Uh, secondly, solitude is not so much about having time to focus on self as it is about dying to a false self. Solitude isn't, it, it's, some of you live in your heads, right? And I don't say that to critique you. I know for some, it's a burden. You, you're just analytical, and you spend a lot of time just kind of like sometimes beating yourself up, obsessing, 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 and you're just, you're just in your own head. And solitude isn't about pulling away and spending more time in your own head. Solitude is about pulling away from all of the distractions all of the noise that you usually turn to to seek to numb or dull or quiet or override the stuff that's going on in your head. And it's actually a time to pull away and in the presence of God, be able to reckon with what is there in your head. Henry Nouwen, that great spiritual guru, put it like this. He said, in solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding no friends to talk with, no calls to make, no emails to answer, no texts to respond to, no meetings to attend, no movies or music to entertain, no TikTok or YouTube or Instagram to distract. By the way, I added that in because Henry Nowen doesn't watch YouTube or TikTok, or, but we do. So here it is. He said, There's none of these things to distract. It's just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude, a nothingness too dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, my distractions, so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. Now, don't misunderstand. now it is not saying that he doesn't believe he is worth something. He does fundamentally believe he is worth something because God has set his eternal love on him. But what he's saying is that he wants to get away from trying to present to others and curate a self for others that they will be impressed by and think they are worth something. Because I told them about my job and my profession and all the things I've accomplished and all the trips I took and, and the, the, the letter I wrote you know, at Christmas to tell them about everything I did and the, the, the way I've curated myself on Instagram. And like he, he says, you pull away from all of that self and you say, like that is not where my worth and my value is ultimately found. My worth is found in God's love, his eternal love that has been set on me in Jesus Christ. And so in solitude, I have time to pull away from the false self and challenge that. He goes on, he says, solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. But you know, when you take time and quiet when you take time to be alone, maybe sometimes for longer blocks of time, sometimes for shorter on a daily basis. But when you do that in quiet and solitude, you have time to rediscover who you are. And I'll just say at a personal level, this is incredibly important for me. You know, so much of my Christian life is lived in public because I'm a pastor. And so, uh, you you might judge me based upon what I say on a Sunday morning or a podcast or a video or something I might put out, but that ultimately is not who I am. Who I am is who I am when no one else is watching. You know, character is like film. It develops in the dark, right? And, And so too, like we need space to be alone, to know who we are when nobody else is watching. You know, it was Howard Thurman who said, you are the only you that has ever lived. And if you cannot hear the sound of the genuine in you, you will all of your life spend your days on the ends of strings that someone else pulls. And so it's in solitude and silence that we, we, we begin to learn, as uh, Howard Thurman discusses here, the genuine in you. Because it's the you before the face of God, naked and vulnerable and open before him. And so number three, not only is solitude, it's not getting away from annoying people. It is rather going to God. It's not simply, uh, you know, this place where we focus on self, but it's the place where we see our old false self dying. But thirdly, solitude is not so much about escaping the spiritual battle as it is engaging more fully in the spiritual battle. You know, it's kind of interesting. So this practice of solitude and silence has has a rich heritage within the tradition of the church. You know, many of, of, of our mothers and fathers in the faith, they knew this practice so much better than modern evangelicals know. And, and they, they attended to the practice of Jesus. They saw Jesus go into the wilderness to be alone. They saw Jesus in the mountain to be in solitude. They saw Jesus withdraw often to, to, to be with his father. And they took a cue from what Jesus had done. And uh, there was a movement, an early movement, that began the monastic movement back in the, the third century of the church. And it was a movement of the desert mothers and fathers, and so these were uh, uh, leaders in the early you know, church who um, they looked around at society around them and they viewed it as this sinking ship. They thought, you know, the stuff around them it was dark and it was just, and so they, they fled the ship as it were to swim for their life. And when they swam for their life, they ran out into the desert to be alone in solitude and silence to seek God. And I think looking back, uh, it's easy to judge them and think, well, you know, this is, this, that looks like an escapist religion. You know, like you're just trying to run from the problems of the world. And, and in some instances, it was. It was them escaping and then <laughs> sometimes doing like really crazy ascetic things. But there was also a really healthy tradition where they would go and they would actually spend, you know, hours and hours in prayer and in silence, and they would find themselves strengthened. And then they would go back into the, the communities from which they fled with strength in order to engage in the work in the spiritual battle. But they actually viewed that going out in the desert wasn't running from a battle. It was engaging in a new kind of battle. Oftentimes, a battle with their own demons, uh, with with their own self, you know. And so, too, in solitude and silence, it's a place to kind of do battle against kind of the darkness, that false self, and to seek to put that off so that you can find strength in God by spending time in his presence and then going out into our life at home with a spouse or in, at school with our roommates in college. My goodness, if you live with roommates in college, you need solitude sometimes. Amen? You know? But uh, but it, it, it gives you new strength to go back in and to face that which you have been uh, struggling with. Henry and put, oh, <laughs> we won't go to Henry. We're, we're going to go to Henry one more time. Can we do that? So let me just close with this. So what, what are we going to do with all of this? So it, it's just a fact, isn't it? that you and I, we inhabit this distracted world. Every day of our lives, we're being habituated to become people who cannot think, who do not have space to reflect, who cannot pray, who cannot think long and get down into the deep kind of like nuances of complex argumentation, we are becoming a people that are outraged and anxious and that are superficial because we are being daily habituated into this by the stuff that we are regularly engaged in. Does anybody, am I, am I speaking anybody's language? Like, I just take that as a given that that's just true. That's the culture we inhabit. And we have got to engage in a counterformational practices if we're going to become different kinds of people. And so if you are going to engage in this counterformational practice of solitude and silence, then number one, there's two things you need. Number one, you need to fashion yourself a desert." Listen to what Henry Nowen says. He says, "We have, indeed to fashion our own desert where we can withdraw every day, shake off our compulsions, and dwell in the gentle, healing presence of our Lord. That's good, isn't it? I read that to Alicia last night. I said, isn't that great? She said, she said oh, withdraw into our own desert every day. That sounds wonderful, you know? And, uh, but, but the reality is, is like, how do we do that, right? And especially in the demands of life, if you've got, you know, I think about the Wileys with, you know, they've got, you know, <laughs> two very small children at home. A two, Two-year-old? Three-year-old? Three. three years. My goodness. Stone is getting so old. A three-year-old, you know, and an eight-month-old? 10 months. Ten, OK, so I'm behind. <laughs> right now, Natalie is feeling so known. <laughs> um, But, you know, I I get it, Like, like, this takes work, right? And so it's something you have to be intentional about. You know, one of the things that James Williams said is that because of the ubiquitous nature of screens in our life, he said, it used to be the case that there were boundaries to when you would entertain and when you would play games. And when. I mean, just think about, like, I remember uh, I'd have to go to a friend's house to play in television. Anybody here remember in television or Atari or something like that? And you had a space and time. It was, it was in a location. There was a boundary. And then you would have to leave. Or uh, you would go, if you wanted to watch a movie, there was a place you would, there was a theater you'd go to or a room you'd watch it in. And then there was a boundary to it. Or if you wanted to go, you know, even going to a sports event, you go to a place and it's there, it's bound, there's boundaries. But there are no boundaries. Screens go with us everywhere we go. And so we have got to create our own boundaries. We have got to be intentional with our time. Because if you are not intentional with your time, if you do not take time to be holy, if you don't take time to be quiet and still and silent, if you don't mark it on the calendar, if you don't have it as a space in your day, it is not going to just come to you. You're not going to just come across a nice period of silence in your… Because there's, there's too many forces around you. That are drawing you in a different direction, so you have got to fashion your own desert. Uh, I I recommend, you know, putting a time in the day, getting up early in the morning, or maybe late at night if that's your thing, and just a time when 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 other people are quiet and take space with God. But the the second thing is not only fashion your own desert, but but you have got to be patient with yourself because the reality is is that so many of us like we have we're already highly distracted D- does anybody else in the room have a harder time concentrating today than you did 10 years ago does anybody else like you're just more easily distracted and so we have, we're, our bodies have been habituated, like our whole minds, like we've created neural pathways that have habituated us to distraction. And so if we're going to change and we're going to be able to create this kind of space, we have got to practice it day by day and be patient with you, with yourself, when you just don't do it very well, you know? I was reading a book by a guy named Rich Viotis this week, and he said in this book, he said, uh, he, he gave a quote from somebody who said, like, um, He said, you might be distracted 10,000 times when you pray. He said, but that's 10,000 opportunities for you to return to God, (laughs) you know? And, And so... Be patient with yourself and give yourself time and have, have your, your vision set on a long obedience in the same direction, recognizing that it is a course, it's a long kind of like path of life of, of developing habits and practices that nurture and, and, and habituate you toward being a kind of person who is deep and who is, who, who has got a, who's enjoying the life that God has, has given you to live. Now, I want to close by turning us to the Lord's table. So we talked about that space in Jesus's life where he withdrew to a quiet place where he could be alone with his father. And there was a kind of solitude that Jesus experienced that we should model our lives after. But then there was also a kind of solitude that actually for Jesus became isolation that you and I never have to experience because he experienced it for us. And so at this time, I'd like to just invite our band to come up. So when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus cried out to his Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the cry of dereliction, the cry of God-forsakenness to say, God, I am utterly alone. Father, where are you in this moment? Christ in that moment was entering into our own God-forsakenness. And he was drinking to the dregs that cup of God-forsakenness so that you and I never have to. And God in Christ has welcomed us not into a relationship where we are isolated and where we're distant. He has, entered it, he has invited us into a relationship where he names us sons and daughters. And he says, you are mine. And so when we engage in practices of solitude and silence, it is not so that we can drum up something with God so that we can make him come near to us. Rather, these are practices whereby we we grab hold of that which is already ours, namely a close, intimate relationship with God. And it's in this practice that we celebrate the good news of that reality. And so in just a minute, I'm going to come back up and I'll lead us in partaking in the Lord's Supper together. But as the band sings this song and leads us in, in raising our own voices, I just invite you to prepare the elements by pulling the top off the cup and getting it ready. And then I'll come back up and I'll, get a, and I'll, and I'll lead us in partaking together. If you didn't receive the elements when you walked in, would you just lift up your hand and... Uh, uh, Carol on this side and Carol on that side actually are going to uh, go ahead and, and, and share that with you if you need that. But let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we turn to the Lord's table that you would reassure us once again that we belong to you, that you have welcomed us into fellowship and relationship, and you've given us a seat at your table. And I pray, oh God, that our heart motivation to engage in all of these practices might simply be because we wanna be a people that enjoys what's already ours through your son, Jesus. And so remind us of that good news as we partake together in the Lord's Supper, amen.